This morning's reading is from 1 Samuel, and you'll find it on page 289 of the Church Bibles. That's 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, starting at verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and we, he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly forward toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewed along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. This is the word of the Lord. Every time someone stands at the front of a church and uh, what they famously say of preachers is that every sermon really is a sermon to yourself. It's a sermon preached to your own person. And in a sense, what I'm going to talk about today is particularly so for me. So let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray this morning that you would renew our minds. You would cleanse our hearts and our minds, and help us remember well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pete's uh, set me up quite straightforwardly this morning in, you know, in terms of getting to the heart of what I want to say. And over the last few years, uh, there'll be a number of you who, who identify with the fact that you've had to move house. Can I, anybody had to move house or flat in the last few years? Quite a lot of you. And uh, we have two or three times over the last four or five years, 
And actually, as you do do that, my overwhelming um, reflection is how much stuff we collect, how much stuff we hold, how much stuff we accumulate. And I'm not great at throwing things away. I don't accumulate a huge amount. That's not because I'm virtuous. It's just kind of partly who I am. But I don't throw lots of stuff away, do I, Joe? No. And, um, but when Joshua and Hannah were born uh, for us, and as of one of the moves we made recently, I came across um, the things we put aside uh, for Joshua and Hannah, like as a memory box. Many of you will remember some of those. And to most other people, if they came across what you saw as a memory box, they'd say, do you know, that's worthless, it's priceless. Nothing of value is in that box. But to the parent, actually, it's of incredible value. Because actually it's priceless. Because in those little mementos are symbols of the life our children have lived. They're mementos. Some of their identity is in that box. And they reveal something of who they are. So this is Joshua's bandage, bandaged little thing from hospital for when he was born. Every day I wake up, I have a physical reminder that our children have the way God miraculously answered our prayers. But sometimes we don't have a living reminder. We have things that point us to what's happened in the past, to God's work in the past, to God's hand in our lives, and different events that have shaped our lives. See, the thing is this, is that we need to remember who we are, or maybe more importantly, whose we are. We are much more than a name, we're much more than a series of objects, we're much more than a postcode, whichever postcode you live in Bath, much more than your job, the, your name that you have, whether it's your own name or a name you took on or it's a name that you've taken yourself. You're more than the education you've had. You're more than the parenting you've had. You're more than the hopes and dreams that each of us have had and the family that you grew up in. But without memory, without the ability to memorize well, we forget who we are, forget where we come from, and we maybe forget where we're going to. And particularly for us, and for us as Christians, unless we learn to memorize well, we forget God's faithfulness to us. We forget God's hand upon our lives. And we, it's like a memory that goes into the distance that we never recall, we never re come back to. God's dynamic, transforming work in each one of our lives. And now I'm not a hugely physical type object person by personality. I don't like those. I know what God has done in my life and I like to hold that within my heart and my mind and recall that. I know lots of my friends have very physical, they're light objects all around. But as I've looked at it and thought about it more, over the last few years I particularly, actually some of the things we hold as we look at God's hand at work in our lives, we need to recognize what's around us and recognize maybe we do need some physical things that remind us of God's faithfulness. To why? When we look through scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we see like David keeping a holy keepsake, reminding us of where we've come from and what God has done in our lives. 
I wonder whether Abraham ever journeyed back to the Mount of Moriah. I wonder whether David ever camped out again at Bethel. I wonder whether Peter ever rode out to the spot where he worked, walked on water and thought, maybe. I wonder whether Zacchaeus took his grandchildren to his tree and said, that's where I met Jesus. And our long-term memory loss, our, our ability to forget, our ability to not remember well, caused a plethora of acute spiritual problems. The primary reason we lose faith, we lose hope, we lose direction, we lose purpose day by day, is we forget God's faithfulness to us. Maybe that's why the word remember is used over nearly 250 times in Scripture. Remember, remember, remember God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done for you and to you. Many of us, and me included, one of the great temptations in life that we don't talk about, we don't recognize, is lots of we can spend our time remembering things we need to forget and forget what we need to remember. So when Jacob builds an altar to, to God at, at Bethel, where the Israelites take the stones and, uh, from the Jordan River and they set them up as a miracle altar to Gilgal, why do they do that? Why do they do that? Is this just... Old Testament faith. Why? Because those physical reminders quickly become spiritual lessons for what God has done, how God has shown us, how he's demonstrated his love for us and worked in each of our lives. But backtrack a second. Go to the scene between David and Goliath. David knew he'd hit, the bullseye had hit Goliath right in the forehead. But had he hit him hard enough? Do you think David had hit Goliath hard enough to kill that giant. But as that nine-foot giant teetered, David knew that though he defeated that Goliath, that it wasn't him who defeated him. The victory belonged to the Lord of hosts. When the giant hit the ground, David sprinted to the fallen Philistine, and he took his armor. He unsheathed, he unsheathed his sword, chopped off his head, decapitated him, then David did something curious. And it's only as you read it again and again, you think, well, why did he do that? He didn't just leave Goliath to die on the battlefield. He began undressing Goliath's armor, which far more complicated than it probably seems today than unbuckling a shoe or a belt. But piece by piece, David undid the armor and moved it. Scripture records that actually the weight of Goliath's armor was 125 pounds 15 ounces. David probably didn't weigh more than that. But David went to the trouble of undoing this armor and taking it back to put in his tent. Why? Why would he take the trouble to do that? To unbuckle all the armor of the dead, this dead, and put it in his own tent. Why? Because the armor became a daily reminder of God's faithfulness to him. A 125 pound, 15 ounces reminder of God's faithfulness to him. And when he looked at that armor, his hope would be renewed, not just for the day today, but also for the future. I read, uh, as part of preparing this, I read this true story. There's an author and writer uh, called Dennis Waitley, and he was. Uh, on his way to a conference, and he, he rushed to get to his plane. 
And as he got to his plane, as many of you who may have traveled by plane, he got to his gate, and he'd been delayed, and it was really on the line, and he got to his gate literally one minute later than the gate closed. And for those of you who've been in that position, and you suddenly think, I'm going to charm my way through, you know, I'm going to get my way through. You started to have a conversation with the person on the desk. said, you know, I got delayed. I've got this really important thing. I'm a speaker. I need to do this thing. Could you just let me through? And he started to try and persuade. He was one minute late. No moving. No budging. He got incensed. He got from kind of understanding to trying to, to, to be, just gradually got more and more incensed. And sort of gave off a volley of abuse and headed to the complaints um, part of, of the airport, of the airline he was traveling with. As he got to the complaints part of the airport, he saw that there was a massive queue there as well. So that was irritating him more, that they weren't looking after their customers, but he stood in the queue. He gradually queued. He'd actually been queuing 20 minutes. He'd got nowhere, nowhere else. And he was looking for his refund. He was going to complain vehemently and all those things. And as he was in the queue, suddenly a, a tannoy notice came over that flight 911 had crashed on takeoff. But the flight he was due to take between, I think it was Chicago and Los Angeles, had crashed and there were no survivors. Well, 9 1 it was, sorry. At that point, he turned, he left the queue, he never registered his complaint, he never sought to get his money back, and he took his ticket with him. And he took his ticket with him. And when he got home, he pinned it to his board. And he said, I'm always going to have that as a reminder. A reminder that there's nothing more important than life itself. And we shouldn't take life for granted. I wonder what you surround yourself with at home or at work as you go about your day-to-day -day life. Do you speak of God's faithfulness? Do you remind yourself of what's really important do you have the things that draw you to the faithfulness of God through the path, the story that God is uniquely writing in you? Your story is completely different to the person next to you. God is working a story in and through you. And the author of faith is scripting it in and through you. Are you remembering it? Are you cherishing it? Are you reminding yourself of what God has done and continues to do in your life? doesn't just reveal who you're becoming, but it reminds us of where we've been and how well God wants to get us to where he's calling us to. I did say to Pete, uh, before I did this, I feel like, um, actually, I'd just like you to take two, one minute, two minutes. I'd like you to think through for a minute, just take a moment of quiet, three items. Could be places, could be physical things. So just take a minute think through three places, through items, through friendships, through whatever it is, that in your walk with God, you may say, I feel a long way from God, but three things that you would say are really important to you that talk of how God has been with you, his faithfulness to you. Just take a moment of quiet uh, to think about that, what that is for you.
term a physical thing, I wonder where that is in your home or at your workplace. If it's a memory, if it's a thing where you know God was present, I wonder where, what you've done to remember that day by day. In the spirit of openness, this morning, I'm just going to share with you four, please don't mock me or laugh at me this morning, but I'm going to show you four of my things that's as good as you're going to get this morning anyway. Um, this is not because I'm trying to pretend to be a super spiritual vicar before I say this. When someone asks you to say, if there's a fire in your house, other than your kids and your wife, just want to affirm, that would be the first thing I could say. Other than that, what would I take? This is what I'd take. And that's not because I'm trying to. It was a gift my parents gave to me on my 18th birthday. It doesn't just represent the fact it's a Bible. It represents it's a spiritual inheritance going down generations from both my parents. Of their prayers for me, their promises for me, their love for me. That, for me, and I'm sorry if it sounds a bit vicary, but that is my most precious item. When my mum died, um, I was, uh, you know, you go around as siblings, I've got two siblings, you get a choice to choose what you want in the house, take it away. Joe and I went to have a look around mum's flat, and I chose this. Joe just smiled at me. This is not valuable, I don't think. It might be, but I don't think it is. Some may argue it's not even pretty. But at a particular point in my life, my mum bought this, and it brought a huge joy. I remember going to Hornsey on the northeast coast for pottery. And at a particularly challenging moment in her life, she, Dad bought these for her to bring her joy. Um, this is a slight indulgence. This is a Monday print of York, um, God's own county, um, but also I was at university in York. It's got the cathedral in the background. And it's a reminder, I was at, at church in there. It's a period in my life where God did some amazing things of gradually revealing himself to me and opening up and beginning to show me again and again and again how good. And I only bought this recently, hampered up in the house. But it's a reminder of how God was at work in me during a time of three or four years. And the things he did, both with friendships that were amazing, but also at that. And I keep that as a reminder. It hasn't actually got on the walls yet, has it, Joe? And this was given to us as a gift, but it's uh, in our doorway. And daily as I walk past, I look at it. It's just a very simple verse from Joshua 24. It says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And daily as I walk past that on the way out and come in, it's a reminder of my life and what I'm doing. I wonder what yours are that actively point you to where you've come from, where you are, and what God is calling you to. But most of us also recognize, as well as those very positive things, we also have some experiences and things that aren't good. There are darknesses. There's challenges, there's betrayals, there's sadness that can shape us. And so in those places of sadness, a Christian, we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness, but also 
being able to bring those sadnesses, bring those bad memories into that place where we can give them to God, where we can place them at the foot of the cross, where we can place them to the God who brings resurrection and healing. We can find grace. We can find forgiveness. We can find restoration. And we can find healing. Instead of keeping a record of wrongs and all the things that have been done to you, we do need to take those memories and the power of those memories, some of them, and take them to Jesus, find forgiveness. And when Jesus says he takes them and buries them in the depths of the sea, they need to be left there. If you have given forgiveness, if you've asked for forgiveness, and God is faithful and just to forgive all your sins, then we need to go in and bury them at the depths and leave them there, not try and dig them all back up again. And I know that's a challenge. I have my own things where that's a temptation for. But unless we begin to remember well and see our minds renewed, we will get tempted back to those dark places, those hard places, and we will end up not being able to experience the peace, the joy, the hope, the love that God longs for each one of our lives. And you may say, well, if you've had a good childhood or a good life, that may be fine. Just remember all the lovely things and forget all the darkness. But Scripture tests again and again and again and again. God did not come for the good. He came for all. He used all. David did not have a charmed life. He was belittled by his brothers. He was looked over by his father. He was mocked by many. But that didn't define him. That didn't define him. The bad things that happened to him and some of the bad things that he did himself did not define him. Actually, in God's hands, they started to refine him. We have a choice, partly choice. Are we going to let the brokenness, the fallenness, our sin, our suffering, the sins of others, the fallenness of the world define us? Are we going to allow that by putting it all in God's hands to refine us, to shape us, to mold us? to see the God who wants to bring us through all those things. I don't know what difficulties you've personally endured or you may currently be enduring. But my encouragement is this, they don't need def to define you. You can place them in the f uh, a trustworthy Father's hands and allow God to start to refine you in that place. If you spend any time with former athletes or people who've done some successful things in athletics for a while, you would think that they were the most amazing things. You know, the older you get, the better it was in the old days. You know, I don't know whether I still talk about some of the things I used to do at school, and if you ask me, I did amazing things when I was at school. The reality, it probably wasn't that amazing, but uh, we have an ability to rewrite the past in a way that makes us, to be honest, look good when we're, you know, at our best. But actually, our memories are subjective, remember. They're not, ob they are subjective, sorry, not objective. And we have an ability to either romanticize the way it was or to catastrophize it and say it's all disastrous or actually it was all amazing, depending who we are, depending on our personality. But in doing that, in looking to see how we deal with that, um, we have an ability to either empower ourselves to live for God or to completely imprison us by living in fear. And that's why it's important to take the whole of our life through the eyes of God and place it in his hands. God has gifted us three types of sight. He's given us hindsight, he's given us foresight, 
and he's given us insight, being able to look back well, to be able to see at the minute, but also to see forward. And that distinctive is distinctive of us in creation. And part of being able to see our whole lives and with clarity and to our identity is being able to deal with the past well. And I recognize that is challenging. God is at work. He is able to redeem. He is able to heal. He is able to restore as he continues to conform us into his likeness. One of the things in social, the social sciences, they've done some research to show about people's experiences. And one of the things they've shown is that people's experiences don't necessarily make you or break you. But what does is our, our interpretation, our explanation of those experiences that determine who we become through that. So our explanations, how we understand what we've gone through, understand what's happened to us, are really important and important to place in God's perspective. Let me give you an example. Just to say, for example, you go, as many would experience in today's society, you go through a difficult breakup or a divorce. And it's hard enough dealing with the present realities of divorce. You know, ranging from what do you do with the kids, if their kids are still children, school age, how would you divide up property between um, couples? But you also have to then deal with a whole load of past, of past memories that continue to flood through your life. You have to explain the breakup to your families or your friends. You also have to explain it to yourself. And I wonder what you say you would say to yourself. There are lots of options you can say to yourself. You can explain it in terms of genetics. Well, it must be in my genes. It's the way I am. Science is created that way. That's the way it is. I'm just a, a, you know, a victim of my biology. That's the way I am. Or maybe you look at your parents and you say, well, it's my genes. You know, I've got it through my parents. But I have bold, bad role models. You can explain in terms of incompatibilities. You can say, well, we were right for each other. You can explain that you're part of the problem, or you can blame it on the other person. You know, it was their fault. They did all this to me. They couldn't change. They couldn't meet my needs. Or you can end up taking all the responsibility on yourself and say, well, actually, it was all me. It's all my fault. I did everything wrong. And take the blame, take the whole weight on ourselves. And the explanations for why relationships don't work and why breakdowns happen are never-ending. We can over-spiritualize it and say, it was all the devil. We can under-spiritualize it and just put it blame elsewhere. We can over-analyze it, we can under-analyze it. There are lots of explanations we can live by. And it is complicated. Anybody who's lived in a real relationship knows that. But how you see it, how you explain it to yourself, how you understand it, will either empower you or debilitate you. It can be either a catalyst for seeing God's hope renewed in your life or to imprison you in fear. None of us can change the past, but we can grow from it and learn from it so that we have a different future. There are lots of explanations uh, for that, for the same experience. A tough past, if you're anything like me and some of the bad things that may have happened to us and the temptation to explain things is to choose God's perspective of how he sees our past. As we come to a close, and many of you will know um, or heard of Corrie ten Boom. And during the Nazi occupation in Holland in World War II, the ten Boom family uh, risked their own safety by hiding Jews in their house. Then on the 28th of February 1944, their home was raided 
and Corrie and her family were sent to a concentration camp. Her father and her sister died in that concentration camp, but through a miraculous series of circumstances in a place of darkness and death, Corrie Ten Boom survived. And for many years after this experience that obviously had shaped her was deeply traumatic, and, but she'd survived, she traveled the world sharing her experiences. And when she would speak, she'd often sit, and it looked like she was just reading from a script then in front of you. You know, she wasn't a very charismatic speaker. It looked like she was just reading her notes. But actually, while she was speaking, she was actually doing needlework. And I was just telling the story of the atrocities that she endured, and many of those she knew endured, at the hands of the Nazis. She would reveal the needlework that she'd been doing. And what she'd do, she'd hold up the back side of it, which was just a jumble of colors and threads, and those of you who know it will understand that, with no discernible pattern whatsoever. And she'd say, that's how many of us see our life. Sometimes it does make no sense. Then she'd turn the needle point round to reveal the finished side. And she'd conclude by saying, this is how God views our lives. And someday, we'll have the privilege of seeing it from his point of view. As she finished, which is where I'm going to finish, she concluded her talk by reciting a poem, and it's this. My life is but a weaving between God and me. I do not choose the colors. He works so steadily. Oft time he weaves in sorrow, and I in foolish pride. Forget, he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. As we go to our weeks coming ahead. What are you going to spend your time looking at, reminding of God's faithfulness to you? What are the threads that connect your purpose and your identity this week? What are the colors that mark the defining moments that shape your life? They're the frame that helps explain the experiences that each of us go through. And if you'll simply put yourself in the master's hands and the loving care of God, he will continue to weave a masterpiece in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness, your graciousness, your mercy, your love for us. It enables us to stand here to sit here, to be here, to worship, to praise, to give thanks. We recognize for each one of us there are all sorts of challenges in our lives. Some of us may be struggling to remember well, feel held and bound captive by past experiences. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring freedom, that you would set us, your people, free, that you renew our minds, renew our hearts, renew our whole beings to enable us to, to leave all that brokenness at the foot of the cross 
and to know your resurrection and your healing and your restoration in our lives. Would you help us to see how we can remember well this week as we come to communion, that ultimate place of reliving the story of Jesus, of returning the story of Jesus, that we offer ourselves afresh that you would renew us to live for your glory this week. In Jesus' name, amen.